welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Jan Vermuth, and joining, joining me as always are my co-hosts Scott Burson and Jonathan Edwards. Today, we will venture into the twilight of the unconscious and see how that helps create strategies and campaigns that click with customers on a very different level. Our special guest today is Lindsay Zoltman, who knows about all of this, and he's joining us today from Pittsburgh, you said, is that right? Lindsay is CEO and partner at Olsen Zoltman, a consumer insights and strategy agency. Lindsay is co-author of a book I highly recommend, Marketing Metaphoria, what deep metaphors reveal about the minds of consumers. He's been published in Harvard Business Review and speaks at conferences all over the world and regularly at Fortune 500 companies. Lindsay, welcome to the Product Quest podcast. All right. Well, thank you all for having me. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Very good. So there is one thing. I, um, I, I kind of looked at your bio on, on, on your website, where there's, by the way, a lot of information about you and your approach, uh, which I also highly recommend. Um, so it's, I think it's olsenzaltman.com is the website. Olsenzaltman.com. Olsenzaltman.com, so which I really recommend. And of course, I read a little bit into your bio there. And there is, is something that I just have to, have to mention. You were some kind of way, and please explain how, involved in the making of the greatest movie ever sold. Is that correct? And what, what, is, what is all that about? Yeah, that's, that is correct. Uh, so that was several years ago. It was a, it was a, a pretty fun uh, endeavor, actually. We had... Uh, this was uh, a movie done by Morgan Spurlock, um, who uh, you know has some other uh, well-known uh, Oscar-nominated uh, documentaries out there. And he, his team came inquiring if I'd be one of the brand consultants on the film. Uh, and I was just going to initially be interviewed for the film, and then instead kind of suggested he goes through our process um, to do an internal oh. kind of brand personality assessment of himself you, using our deep dive techniques, which I'm sure we'll get to later on. But Nice. Um, yeah, and it was really, it was, it was fun and he really, you know, dove into it, uh, I embraced it all and, uh, yeah, it ended up turning out, it wasn't the intention going in, but it ended up turning out to be the kind of key turning point in the movie where all of his kind of the drama of him having, you know, doors closed in his face, uh, not finding <laughs> yeah. the right partnerships. He came to me, we did an assessment of his brand, uh, came to my firm, did an assessment of his brand. Okay. And from there on, he started to, uh, you know, get some like-minded brands that were willing to partner up and sponsor uh, uh, his film, the, the greatest movie ever sold. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, that's very interesting. So this is, I mean, the, the movie is about, I mean, he, it, I always wondered, like, is this really a movie? He kind of, it, it's not really, a, I mean, it, it's about itself in a certain kind of way where he only just kind of shows how he's trying to sell the greatest movie ever sold. Exactly. It's kind of a clever, I mean, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, obviously, but yeah. kind of showing how the movie industry works nowadays with the funding behind the scenes and the product placements, sponsorships, that sort of way. And he kind of, you know, does it in his unique way of just kind of bringing it to life. And, you know, it's a documentary, but it's, you know, it's got some of the, you know, kind of storylines along the way that he kind of intends to communicate throughout it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Okay, so that's just, it's a great way to start. You mentioned a couple of things that, that I, I immediately want to dive in there. So I think one of the things that, that comes up again, like you have these, you mentioned like these deep, deep techniques that you have. And I think depth is also a word that comes up again and again in the book. So I, 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 what I really liked is the very beginning. I think there you mentioned a concept of where you say deep thinking, like that that is something 
that, that is that is that is lacking to a certain extent or that managers especially managers are might not be used to so can you a little bit elaborate on, on what deep thinking is and what the relevance of that is yeah sure uh, yeah i talk about it uh, nowadays as the the depth deficit and the kind of general lack of deep thinking going on in our our industries the business world in general uh, and uh, unfortunately, it's getting worse, not better. Um, I think it, like all of these things, will it's kind of on a pendulum swing, and eventually it'll kind of you know hit hit the far end, and <laughs> companies will start suffering for it. Well, I think they're starting to now. You see yeah. some companies suffering for it now, and it'll start to swing back to some kind of more uh, manageable level. But you know, and some of it's just the way the world is. Some of this is out of our control, but just the the speed at which decisions are made today. Um, the, you know, you don't have the luxury of creating a five-year strategy anymore. It's more like a, a one-quarter strategy, you know, or yeah. something like that. And that's, you know, that's kind of the way the corporate world works and, you know, Wall Street and you kind of all these deadlines and pressure. So you put aside the long-term deeper thinking needed to focus on these short-term successes. And ultimately, they're not really getting to you to a bigger place in the end. Um, you know, and then I look at things, you know, like just the advancements of technology and big data impacts all of our industries and it's fascinating yeah. and it's super useful, but it's also a fast, it's the opposite of deep thinking in some sense, you know, where you get all this information instantly at your fingertips and you get this false sense of confidence that perhaps all of the answers are in there and you don't end up spending the time kind of deeply pondering, doing workshops, we do a lot less workshops nowadays and a lot less of this kind of deep thinking, um, that allows you to get deeper strategies and therefore deeper connections with customers. Yeah, I I love this. I immediately kind of connect to this on 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 a couple of different points I want to go into there, but especially big to the big data point. I think is one that bears repeating or really emphasizing. I mean, our our or my way of thinking about this is yes, okay, that's interesting. But does it ever tell you like why something happened? Is there ever a kind of an explanatory power to big data? And I re I I doubt it. It might kind of you can find correlations. I'm not an expert in this, but this is my this is so I, I like this a lot. Like what the depth is necessary, time is necessary. What what else kind of is 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 goes into a really, as you said, a, a, a deep strategy, let's say. Yeah. I mean, the biggest one is a deep understanding of your customers. And you can get very useful and even in some senses deep understandings of the behaviors. Uh, that your customers have through big data, but you're exactly right. It doesn't tell you the why. It's the what, not the why. Um, so I actually, uh, big data's you know opened up a lot of doors for my uh, my firm, which is paid to do deep thinking for clients that don't have the time <laughs> to do that, like you know uh, you folks as well. And um, because they understand they have you know some part of the answer, but not the deeper answer as to why are consumers buying my product over a competitor's or competitors over mine or shopping at this time versus that time. They have all that data in front of them, but they don't know the why. So, um, and usually where the why is, is where those powerful emotional connections are. And um, the deeper, more interesting things that you want to tap into with a consumer when you're trying to make a connection with them. Yeah. I like that a lot. I also think that and you mentioned this, and I think it's a, it's an experience everybody makes today. Like the speed of things is just incredible. Like, I, and if you look at calendars, that's like, like, who has time for what? Like, okay, yeah. And and but but then again, I think it's it's um so the depth and and taking the time to actually think about stuff could could be a perfect remedy of this because 
I, I'm sure we're going to get into this, but if you really think about stuff deeply and if you have a very deep insight, that's, at least that's my belief, is it's ten, they tend to be stable. They tend mm-hmm. to be very, very stable over time and, and kind of something that you can rely on and, and that doesn't change that quickly with technology and everything changing, but deep, deep insights about your consumers, usually they don't change or wouldn't, or would you disagree? No, I would exactly agree with that. And that's why if you look for, you know, often called, we look at it through a deep metaphor lens, but um, you know, human truths is another way people talk about it, but these universal themes that kind of transcend the moment, but they're the deeper reasons why a consumer, you know, um, buys their favorite brand of clothing or a soft drink or a luxury car, all you can get caught up in what I call like the seduction of differences, you know, that what makes everyone so different as it surrounds a product, you know, why we have 20 different segments and we'll talk to them in 20 different ways and they must have 20 different reasons they use the product. But if you can find out what that shared deeper universal uh, concept is that all of them are using that product for, or your brand for that's the most powerful thing. Um, But yeah, but those are the kind of things that take, you know, deep research to do, deep understanding to do. You don't learn about those by a quick kind of, you know, high level trivial conversation with consumers. You have to really kind of dig in and find out what's going on. Yeah. In your book, Marketing Metaphoria, you have um, a very nice quote where you say, ignoring a likeness as an important driver of thought and behavior leads to depth deficits in strategic thinking. Yeah. That's exactly right. I should have quoted my own book and summarized this whole thing up, but thank you. But that's exactly right. Um, yeah, the, the these universal themes, they, I mean, they, they're just, it's why they're universal. We've done a study before for, um, you know, what it's like to be a good mom and did it with moms in the US, France, Japan, working moms, stay-at-home moms, and, you know, all the different kind of classic segmentations of this. And you can very easily in your mind get caught up and say, well, there's no way we can talk to a working mom in Japan the same way we talk to a stay-at-home mom in the U.S. They have to be so different. When you find out at a deep level, being a mom is being a mom is being a mom. It's about nurturing and pride and caregiving. Those are the most important things to grab onto, not the differences that you might see at a surface level. You don't want to ignore the differences. Sometimes that's how you make a compelling communication by focusing on a unique cultural element or something like that. But it has to be built off some deeper kind of reason why they're, you know, a mom. So, yeah. Yeah. I would love to get into it. But, but we have been using, I think, the meta- metaphor of depth. Maybe it's not the metaphor of depth, but we haven't been using the word deep as a kind of metaphor, like for the past five minutes all the time. <laughs> so deep thinking, of course, that's kind of, a, I mean, that's a metaphor of using deep. So could you explain a little bit, like, what role, and you mentioned this, like, what role do, do, do metaphors play? play in your approach in your in, in your thinking because I, I mean they're a central role of course yeah they, they are um, we're sort of known as the the metaphor experts in the industry helping helping our clients understand the metaphors consumers use to think about a product or a service or an experience in life and then helping clients leverage those metaphors and in their innovation or communication strategies or applied it to a bunch of different things but those tend to be the two most common ways um, there's a general rule of thumb, uh, probably preaching to the choir here, but, you know, about 95% of human thought is unconscious. Um, We used to have to convince people of that uh, 
you know, been doing this now for 25 years, but we used to have to convince people of that. Mm -hmm. Now, usually most people kind of understand you can debate whether it's 90%, 98%, but most of our That's thought happens right. at an unconscious level. And some of that, a lot of that is because we couldn't function or process the world if we were aware of every kind of different element coming in. So our mind has a way to do that. But I'd also say that the most important, I think I may have even said this before, the most important connections that consumers have with a brand or a category or service are happening at unconscious levels. So you need to use research techniques to get into their deeper thoughts and feelings. We use metaphor as a way to do that. Uh, I'll try to give the higher level description of metaphor. I'm happy to elaborate uh, as well. But um, we talk, and this is what Marketing Metaphoria, our book kind of talks about if people want the, the, the deepest version of this uh, explanation. But um, we as humans, whether whatever language, culture, society you live in, uh, we use metaphors, the most basic way to communicate about the world around us. We use in Western languages about five to six metaphors per minute in our conversations. So you say things all the time, like I'm dragging today. I flew across town. Uh, he's driving me nuts. Uh, you know, these kind of metaphors and everyone has them in their own languages, but we, every culture is built like this. My roommate's sponging off me. I feel shackled by my financial situation. It goes on and on. We're using in a given study, you know, that we do, we'll uncover thousands and thousands of these surface metaphors. And what you try to do is explore the deeper meaning behind that with consumers. And so you might play around with that metaphor. If someone says, I feel shackled by my financial situation, you know, why are you shackled? What do those shackles represent? How does it feel to be shackled? How would it feel to have those shackles removed? And I'm oversimplifying things a little bit, but just by playing around mm -hmm. with that metaphor, that little surface metaphor that resides in their 5% of conscious level thought you get some very deep emotions, frustration or fear, anticipation or hope of what it might be like if you were to have these shackles removed. Um, so in doing that, you can then start to see some of these deeper ideas in place um, that are just hidden behind these metaphors that consumers give us all the time. We just often don't focus on them. Um, you kind of you know read through them actually as you're reading through a transcript or as you're listening to a focus group live or something like that. You're not even aware of them. We kind of specialize in making sure we're aware of them and then, you know, exploring deeper what those are because those hide deeper meanings, deep, uh, deeper uh, thoughts that consumers have. That's very, I think there is also, I mean, a lot of these metaphors are also, these, or what you call surface metaphor. Maybe we have to get to other kinds of deeper metaphors yeah. later on, but a lot of these metaphorical speech, it's, it's also changing over the time. The surf, I mean, Sometimes I think it's very easy to spot a metaphor because it's either very obvious or it's kind of a new one. So mm -hmm. but there are very, very deep, well, not those kinds of deep metaphors, but old metaphors, let's say, old yeah. metaphors that are very hard to spot that you lose in your, using your everyday language and we're not that aware of that they're actually, that they're actually a metaphor. For, uh, for example, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm dragging today. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not sure if a lot of people were, would realize that that is a metaphor. So it nah. takes, I think, or, you know, like it's yeah, very deep. It's exactly right. And, but what's neat about it when it can, and most of the time in our interviews, they aren't even aware they used a metaphor, but we're kind of trained to pick up on them. So if someone says, you know, if we're doing a study for, I don't know, an energy drink or something like that. And someone says, you know, I'm just dragging today. That's an important metaphor. They didn't even know they used a metaphor, but we do. And so we'll stop and say, you know, what are you dragging? Why are you dragging? How does it feel to be dragging something? What would it be like to not drag something? You know, you start playing around with it and it's kind of cool to see there like kind of sparks in their hmm. brain go off. 
because often they'll be like, I didn't even realize I used that. But yeah, this is what I mean. And they get you get this like really nice elaboration beyond uh, that little simple statement. So, yeah. Can you so can you elaborate a bit on on you? What are you looking for? Like, what is the the the, the information that is so valuable if you kind of kind of go one step deeper into elaborating the metaphor? And then how can you use that later? Yeah. So what we're looking for often for our clients, the, the key emotions are obviously that's one of the things that everyone, I think everyone's starting to understand now is not focusing so much on product attributes and the functional outcomes of those. I mean, they're not unimportant, but if you want to make a stronger connection, it's not about talking about the different product attributes. It's a talking about that emotional connection to your customer. And so emotions are one of the key things we have which emotions are very closely tied to the metaphors we used. Like I, you know, you, you actually can't really describe a meta an emotion without using a metaphor. So I'm bursting with joy. Uh, I, you know, I was boiling mad today. You know, you, we do this all the time. They're so close. So one of the ways through metaphors to get these emotions, but the other thing we look for are these deep metaphors, what we call deep metaphors. And these are these universal unconscious and human truths uh, in that sense, but these universal uh, unconscious frames that all humans have and share about the world around us. Um, and there's only 15, 17 of these, maybe 20 of these. We'll have some nerdy debates back in our office about whether it's 15 or 17, but there's not 50 or 100 of these. There are these deep human metaphors that we'll use to explain um, what it's like to be a mom or what it's like to enjoy breakfast in the morning or whatever. And so some of these are like balance, container, transformation, control, journey, some of these kind of themes. And you can start to think about, um, you know, your work-life balance. You might say something like, you know, I feel out of whack. I had to work all weekend or I'm off kilter. You know, I haven't had a vacation in a few months. You're not literally off kilter when you're saying that you're using a metaphor to describe that. You might come back from a holiday and say, you know, I just feel centered again now. Um, metaphorically, you're back into balance. And so what the beauty of it is consumers don't know they're using or even have these unconscious frames, but through the right types of research and by paying attention to this kind of stuff, you can take all of those surface metaphors, figure out the patterns there, and ultimately be able to figure out, okay, these consumers, when they think about this product or this experience, use, you know, usually two or three or four deep metaphors kind of rise to the top as the most common ones. That becomes really important to a client to know that your product is all about emotional transformation, physical balance, and, you know, uh, connection to self or something like that. And that's where we can start to uh, help clients with these kind of deeper uh, unconscious thoughts and feelings that consumers have. Um, the metaphor I gave before, I feel shackled by my financial situation. That's a great example yeah. of this container metaphor feel shackled. I feel imprisoned. Um, you know, it's a heavy cross to bear might be a more Western or Christian metaphor used, but all of those consumers will give us and we'll see there's, okay, there's a little pattern going on there. Consumers are feeling contained or trapped by, um, this experience. And so those are the kind of things you look into and you can start to leverage. To make sure I understand now. So there's this, you guys have this set of 15 or 17 or I love the fact that you talk about you guys debate it because I think we can we can relate to the <laughs> yeah, yes. and uh, you know you wake up at night and you're like and you think you thought of another one. Oh no it's the same as yellow but <laughs> exactly if you understand correctly when you're interviewing your customer or you're interviewing uh, respondents customers you have this set of let's just say 15 for a discussion like this set of 15 universal deep metaphors and based on what there's well no matter what where their beginning point is it's going to ultimately 
be represented by by at least one of those? I, I guess that's my first question. Yeah. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And so that's the power that I was talking about before of finding those deeper frames that transcend psychographics or geographic yeah. differences or whatever. What is it? Everyone that owns a BMW, whether you're young, old, male, female, wherever, what is it about that brand association that's the same? And, and that's where these deep metaphors can come in and say, now we have to communicate that to a millennial in Europe or you know a boomer in the US or whatever, but it's based off of the same kind of deep insight. So if, if like there could be people, different places, different cultures, whatever, I mean, have they're motivated by the same common, what's the, what's your terminology for? Is it deep metaphor? These yeah, deep, deep metaphor, deep, exactly. Deep metaphors. Now, if somebody has a, they, they say I'm dragging whatever, could that, and, and you ask questions, could it be pointing to more than one or is it literally just pointing to one? It can. And that's some of the tricky stuff you get into. And that's some of the, you know, our, this research that, this particular type of research is qualitative in nature. So always have multiple minds on it and kind of, you know, get good perspectives, but there's some metaphors out there. Like, uh, you know, this is my circle of friends. That's two metaphors, actually it's connection and container. So you're connected by this circle, yet you're also a container where you're letting people into your circle of friends or keeping people out of it. And so that's when you start to look at these kind of nuances and say, okay, well, are they really talking about this more as like connection or is this more of container or is it both? Um, and so, yeah, there's, I mean, that's part of the fun of our job is helping clients figure that out. But, but yeah, that's exactly right. They can have multiple meanings or different meanings to them. So that's very, I mean, I'm interested in a couple of things there. One is, isn't it completely surprising that this works across cultures? Like that on a on a certain level, I was I'm I'm, I'm I mean you, because you could say well metaphors is so that's so connected to to language. I mean we are all now we're using always language. There's so of course maybe deep metaphors are kind of another or another level of some kind, but metaphors are so strongly connected to language and 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 that is so strongly connected to culture. So it wasn't just like a huge surprise to find out that these are kind of basic human or how did you we, we did a lot of reading my father's actually the the original zaltman and olson zaltman so my other two partners <laughs> jerry olson who's professor of marketing emeritus now at penn state university and my father at harvard university my father developed the technique we use today uh zmet to to go through this um but it started with a lot of reading a lot of literature out there, out there on metaphor theory, on human universals, from anthropology, psychology, et cetera. Um, so some of it you kind of start to realize from other domains that there are some of these universals out there. But then as we got into it, yes, it's kind of neat, you know, when you're starting to discover these deep metaphors, and then you start to realize, okay, we're really not seeing any more at this point. But they're, they're universal because, um, I mean, again, the surface metaphors will differ. Like, you know, if yeah. someone says it's a heavy cross to bear, you're not going to hear someone in China use that necessarily because it's a Christian metaphor, but it, you'll hear them use the same equivalent metaphor tied to a deep metaphor with their own surface metaphors. So um, definitely the language people use at surface levels differs, but it will funnel down into this deeper shared universal concept. That's the power of these deep metaphors. And it comes from this notion of embodied cognition. I won't go too crazy into this either, but like this idea that we all as humans mm. learn to experience the world in the same way. 
um, in balance, for example, as you're a little baby learning to take your first steps or reaching for something and you knock it over, your mind is learning this idea of physical balance. And later on in life, your mind says, okay, Lindsay, you're going to talk about this work-life issue in terms of this balance metaphor. It's unconscious. You don't know it's happening. Journey, you say it's an uphill road it's, or it's a rocky road. It's an uphill battle. Uphill battle um, yeah. I, you know, someday I'll find my way. You know, all these metaphors, those are journey metaphors because we have lived, literally learned as humans the idea of getting from point A to point B. Um, connection, all these metaphors come from this bio biologically rooted embodied cognition. And that's why we all as humans use these same metaphors. Um, so it's really, it's, I mean, it's some fascinating, fascinating that's stuff. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, these are kind of things we learn as we, as we grow up and, and mm -hmm. by the fact that we're kind of the same, I don't know, species or whatever, like yes. the same kind of, kind of thing. Um, uh, that's why we have some, but they aren't, would you say they aren't, I mean, okay. This is maybe a philosophical question, right? So th th these are things that we learn that we don't have, or are they kind of, we get them as uh, on, on the date of our birth? You learn them as you go, but I mean, some of it's innate as a human physically, you know, learning how to walk. You, you have okay. physical capabilities as, you know, as two arms and two legs. And, you know, in that sense, it's kind of given to you at birth. But the concept as you apply this idea of balance to other things in life, uh, that is an act of learning through your environment. But again, it's unconscious. You know, we don't know we're actively, you know, thinking about these things. They just happen through experiences in life. Yeah. Um, okay. So th th that's very interesting stuff. Like, and, and, and how, I mean, maybe that's, I don't know, but, but how do you come, how do you find those deep metaphors? Like, how do you, how, I mean, first of all, I'm, I, I love the fact that you kind of found, you're explaining metaphors by other metaphors. So that is something I, I love for, for a couple of different reasons. But, but, but how do you find, or, or how do you, well, you now you say you, there are 15, maybe there are 14. How do, how do you find an additional one? Or how do you, yeah, I don't know if the question makes sense. So. <laughs> well, we found them over time. And again, some of this was done through reading uh, literature. George Lakoff is an expert in metaphor theory out yes. of Berkeley. And, you know, there's folks like this who have been in academia doing a lot of this kind of research. And so you learn from what they're writing about, um, you know, other linguistic experts. You, you're seeing this, other just experts out there, like we draw a lot from Jung's work, you know, even some of the classic kind of, you know, folks you can draw. So a lot of it's learning from others and then going out and, you know, having this technique that we know captures metaphors, elicits metaphors. So our technique we use is called yeah. ZMET, the Zaltman Metaphor Elicitation Technique. It's kind of a mouthful, so we go by the acronym. But that <laughs> is a metaphor elicitation tool. And so we elicit metaphors from consumers. And in doing that, so it's an expert way at getting thousands of metaphors on the table to use a metaphor. Um, yeah. And as time went on, we're studying the patterns and languages. We had a way to kind of start to categorize them and think about them and say, okay, what do we want to call this? Well, let's call this connection because there's, you know, these are all themes that are, uh, you know, these seem to all tie to connection, call this journey, call this balance, force, et cetera. So some of that's just our kind of internal frame or coding around uh, how we mm -hmm. talk about these things. So, yeah, yeah. It, it's, I was just I was I just want to mention so the 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 book metaphors we live by 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 George yeah. Lake of and and Mark John it hard recommend so if you have time if you're really interested in the metaphors strongly recommend that one so <laughs> it's an excellent book we have it's everyone at our company read it when they start here it's a great one 
Oh, I love that. I love companies who have like like a mandatory reading at the beginning. Like, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. how it should be. Yeah. Is there a hierarchy of metaphors? Like you've got your 15 and then those funnel into a six and ultimately you get to the one ultimate deep metaphor or you don't think of them that way? There, There's not a hierarchy. The, the hierarchy would be those 15, 17 deep metaphors. But what you see in a given study, you'll find expressions of all 15 or 17 of those in a study if you look for them. Someone's inevitably, we talk to consumers for an hour and a half sometimes, and you're doing so they're going to use metaphors from a, a lot of these. But what we're basically doing is looking and seeing which are the most commonly talked about ones. So usually within a study, you'll see two or three of these have the most surface metaphors that consumers are using to talk about them. And then that becomes the metaphor metaphors that kind of rise to the top. So there is some of that, but it happens on a per project uh, basis or per topic basis uh, as we think about it. As you described that, I'm picturing like a histogram of there's all 15 or 16. There's got to be 16. No, there's all 15, whatever. And yeah. it's almost, you know, you see, you know, this one has is high, this one's low, this one's or whatever, almost like a pat, like a, a DNA or a, of, of this customer or market. It is. It is in a very, I mean, uh, our analysis, there's a lot of kind of behind the scenes rigor and we've got software and we've got, you know, doing a lot of kind of sophisticated analytics, but that's exactly, if you were to explain it in the most basic way, that's exactly what we're doing is looking through the transcripts from this and seeing which of these buckets in a sense are kind of filling up. And then you try to go make sense of the two or three buckets that did fill up with the most surface metaphors and start to figure out what that story is there. So yeah, that's a, it's a, a great way to think of it. So you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned ZMAT, so the, the, the metaphor elicitation, Zoltman metaphor elicitation um, technique, I think is. Yes. Can you give us a little bit of a behind the scenes look like how, how do you elicit metaphor? How does that work? Yeah, sure. So this was actually, and again, give my dad the credit here. He's the Zoltman in that. Uh, he ran this lab at the business school campus called the Mind of the Market Lab. Um, back in the 90s, and that's where he developed this technique, ZMET. It's actually the first uh, marketing research technique to ever get a U.S. patent. So, um, you know, it didn't really matter, and the nice. patent has <laughs> since expired. We have the name rights and everything, but, the, you know, it didn't really matter uh, about the patent to us, except that we were proud there was something patentable about it, and that was the scientific foundation and rigor that went into developing it was able to get this. So it's kind of cool there. But so my dad was learning early on the power of metaphors and, hit, and at that time also especially imagery as a way to get uh, consumers to think about, um, uh, you know, experiences in a deeper way. And so a ZMET study, and this is other research techniques do this too. We, we didn't invent this, but a ZMET study asks consumers to bring in images that metaphorically express their thoughts and feelings about the topic. So soft drink study, thoughts and feelings about the role of soft drinks in your life. Please bring in five to six images that express your thoughts and feelings about this. We do one-on-one -on -one in-depth interviews with consumers. Each of them bring in those images. Um, and we have ways to get them to think metaphorically. We don't literally want them to bring in a picture of a soft drink or someone drinking metaphoric, someone floating on a cloud or going down raging rapids or whatever it is. And we just literally use those images as a starting point and uh, for that hour and a half conversation. And as I mentioned before, so those are surface metaphors, what I was talking about before. This is a metaphor, a woman floating on a cloud. Someone was able to kind of consciously think about uh, as something that soft drinks provide to them. 
Um, you know, and so what we do is start exploring that, you know, so tell me why you brought this image in. Um, what does it mean? You know, and then you let them kind of talk for a couple minutes about it. Well, to me, this shows the peace of mind she has when she has her favorite beverage with her throughout her day. Um, she's able to just calmly lay there and enjoy floating on air, something like that. And then we start as they do that, like I said before, five to six metaphors per minute are used. And so more metaphors are coming out <laughs> that aren't even tied to that picture. They're just coming out. Yeah. So she might say, you know, she's floating on like floating on air there. And, and to me, that just gives me this bubbly feeling. Well, now we might say, okay, bubbly feeling. You just mentioned that. What does that mean? You know, and so you're kind of just, you can't possibly explore every metaphor consumers use. Yeah. So our moderators are trained to say, okay, this one's strategically relevant. Let me do a little deep dive on this. I'll let that one pass. And, you know, so you're doing a lot of that through it. But a lot of it is just sparked from those images and then the conversations that go through there. We draw a lot from uh, psychotherapy in our interview process. Um, I think this is a really important thing. Probably one of the things I think ZMET, I think I'm biased a little bit, obviously, but one of the things I think ZMET does, um, you know, as good as any qualitative technique or, or better is we don't put any bias into it. And so it's all participant led. So uh, a lot of, you'll never hear us ask, oh, that must feel good to have that bubbly feeling. It's always, mm. how does it feel to have that bubbly feeling? Because it might surprise you. Sometimes consumers will say, um, it's actually a little bit annoying sometimes because you don't always, and if I interject, oh, that must make you feel happy. It's just easy human nature to be like, oh yeah, it is happy. And all of a sudden you don't know if that was in there because yeah. they really meant it. So like a therapist doesn't tell the patient the answer. Uh, the therapist asks the patient a lot of those questions. Why? How does that make you feel? What led to that? You know, a lot of those types of questions. So the, the patient eventually gets to the answer on their own. And that's what a lot of the yeah. kind of guiding we're doing in a ZMET study too. So, Yeah, that's very interesting. I think this is, so the, this is probably where the Jungian part also yeah. com comes in a certain sense. That is the, 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 the I mean, the patient, and then also, I mean, you can transform this into the, to the kind of business context. And, and it's something I also believe in is, like, I mean, the customer knows, they know, they know. I mean, you can, okay, now we can debate what we actually mean by knowing. Probably I would mean <laughs> a little bit something different than you mean, but but they have the answer. So, so and I think yeah. it was your, I, I wrote it down somewhere. Let me check. So um, I watched a video and it's Jer Jerry Saltman. That is your, that's your dad. Okay. Yes. So he somewhere has beautiful, he says a beautiful sentence. He says, if you trust the people you want to understand, they repay that trust with insights. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I was like line. blown away, but I, like, that's exactly, that's a yeah. lovely way of framing it. It is. Yeah. You know, let them tell you. And I'd agree with you. They do know the answers, whatever we mean by no, yeah. it's in their brains is what we're saying. It's in their minds. And so all you have to do is give them kind of a, a medium to voice that and to allow it to kind of, you know, uh, surface. So, yeah. I'm wondering, how would you describe this? So if I understand that correctly, you start off a picture and then and then it, it's really led by the participants. So wherever it goes, of course, within kind of the frame of, of, of whatever is strategically relevant, but wherever it goes. Now, what is that? Is Are you making stuff, are you taking stuff that is unconscious and making it conscious? Or are you deeply, are you exploring the unconscious? Or how would you describe the process that is happening there? I would call it that we're exploring the unconscious. We're asking questions that we know are getting consumers to deeper areas than they'd be able to access just through traditional conversation. Um, so we have a lot of types, I'm not to give them out here, but we have a lot of types of 
metaphor specific probes that we ask and also do some traditional kind of laddering exercises too um, throughout an interview uh, as well. But it is designed to kind of go deeper. And like I was saying before, you know, um, why do you feel that way? What led to you yeah. feeling that way? And, you know, kind of doing some of those things. And, and again, you see these kind of light bulb moments with consumers because you're realizing that this is the first time they've ever thought this deeply about why they buy the soft drink brand they do, you know? And so it's kind of cool. We've done this with therapists actually for a pharmaceutical company. And they're like, Hey, I know what you're uh -oh. doing to me. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> so it's funny. Gonna... Yeah. And uh, they went they great. through you. Yeah, exactly. Use another metaphor. But, but they were aware of the techniques we were using, you know, it was, it was fine. They, they all, you know, played along <laughs> with it too, but uh, yeah, it's kind of funny, but, but that's kind of the, the idea here is just, um, yeah, we're asking the types of questions that we know get consumers to, you know, boil, you know, have this stuff kind of come to life. Okay. And I just have a, maybe just a practical question. I mean, if you're dealing with a, a, a product that doesn't exist yet, how would you approach this in this case? I mean, if they can't refer to any of their prior experiences. Yeah. So that's the beauty of metaphor too. If there's a new product, any new experience we have in life, it's almost like a metaphoric process we go through to experience it. I've never had this before, or I've never done this before, but it's almost like this experience I have done before, or the next closest thing I can think about is this, you know, new beverage is kind of like this old beverage category. So we do a lot of this kind of, you know, metaphoric or categorization, but a lot of this kind of thinking anyways, uh, as, as we go through things, but often what we'll do in a research study, and we've done this for clients launching in like literally a new category that consumers don't have any concept about what you try to do. Uh, we did one for a, a client, a tech firm who was launching. This is, uh, you know, me many years ago too, but launching like the first in-home robot. Um, and you can't ask about, it was going to take the place and centralize a lot of the technology in people's homes, you know, doing these things now that are not, um, you know, technologies advanced, but, you know, doing the lighting, um, you know, having centralized uh, all of your music, when you call your mother, a hologram of her appears and you can interact with her that way, you know, just all these things uh, 15 years or so ago that weren't really necessarily happening. And there was going to be this, you know, robot that kind of became your companion, you couldn't ask in a, as a research question, your thoughts and feelings about robots, because everyone would kind of talk about these 1950s kind of like Terminator. Yeah. All <laughs> that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So you can't ask about that because those aren't the kind of frames they want. Um, you can't ask about in-home robots anyways, because they don't exist. And so what we did is we did a, what's the next closest thing. What is the category that this is going to be replacing? And it was in-home technology. So we did a study on your thoughts and feelings about the role of technology in your home, because this is what this was going to do. And so you can understand that experience and find out all of the deep needs and experiences and emotions that technology in your home provides, and then say, okay, this robot, now this is where managers and you know folks do the good thinking on the back end of the research, because this is one where it's not going to directly come out of consumers' mouths I want a home robot to do this, but they will talk about what they want home, you know, technology in the home to do. Um, so that, you know, it's kind of creative ways to get around these things when it's a new category or, or industry, but metaphor is great for those situations. That's, that's quite interesting because uh, obviously I, when I was younger, I worked in a library and I had to classify stuff and I quickly realized that I had a big problem 
because some things you can categorize in very different ways. I and mean, it changes your whole organization depending on how you, you organize things. And it was actually, I, I got really intrigued by that, I have to say. And it was quite an interesting thing. And I, 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 wasn't, I don't think I was very efficient in this job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I, I think here this, I mean, I wondered, I mean, you, you say you chose as a, a similar category, home entertainment for the robot, for instance. But, I mean, we could potentially imagine thinking about, okay, what, what, what is the robot trying to achieve? So maybe with the robot, you could also say, okay, we're going to categorize it as a machine that helps you cook or something yeah. so compare it to the, the the stove or something so why is home entertainment the best choice for comparing it with the robot yeah so in this case it was home technology which kind of has some of their entertainment some of their communications some of the home facilities in it so it was a little bit broader like that but that's but, but you're right in some sense you could think of a number of different applications you could do a deep dive on. And when they did talk about some of those needs, sometimes when they talk about, um, you know, their music collection, we would probe on why that was important and you'd get a different kind of, uh, you know, deeper needs that music was fulfilling uh, as it relates to technology in their home life than connecting to your loved ones through a phone call or something like that. Um, so they, you know, we were exploring kind of different areas even within that domain. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just some of the challenge you go through, just some of the good kind of strategizing. We we call it in our work, the ZMET question. What's that one question we're going to ask consumers about your product mm -hmm. or category or whatever it is, and then we're going to probe deeply on that. So you do want to make sure you get it right, because yeah, if you if you don't, you're going to have a deep research study on something that you know is not exactly what you were hoping for. And so we, we spend a lot of time and just you know, simply changing a few words here or there can dramatically change what mental yeah. model or frame you're asking your consumers to think deeply about. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. I mean, I think, I mean, a lot of probably thought or deep thought would go into, into how do you scope and frame such a study? How do you, I mean, what is it that you, that you pin it on? Is it where, I mean, you said it could be becoming a mother, right? So yeah. how, how, what does that, and, and that could be kind of a, and it, it, I imagine that it's quite tricky sometimes to find what is the exact scope or, to, or the frame actually for the study itself, because you, you can get into completely different directions if, if, if that goes wrong. What I really like is that it seems to be, well, I, maybe that is, that, I, that is a wrong perception and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to be on the one hand, it, is, it doesn't depend on a, on a solution necessarily. So you can, of course, it's about soft drinks and then, and then it's tied to a solution. But the robot example was it's the technique is not dependent on the existence of a certain solution. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm trying here to sneak in a little bit of jobs done jargon, of course, but that's, <laughs> the, yeah. that's the, the agenda. So, and, and I think that's also where Jonathan tried to go. Like, couldn't you also kind of pin it on, on, on to cook? I want to cook. I want to, I don't know. I want to yeah. entertain well, myself in the evening. Or... Yeah, yeah. So what we do and we have a lot of clients that, that work in the jobs to be done model also. I think it's a great model, a great framework. And ZMET is a nice way to kind of add on to it or help build it. It's not the only way or the only thing, but um, but it's one piece that you can use in a larger jobs to be done process. Um, I think, you know, when you think about this topic of thoughts and feelings about the role of soft drinks in your life, hmm. that's a, a beautiful way to start getting consumers to talk about 
all of the different times they use soft drinks, um, you could focus that question and say thoughts and feelings about the various times and yeah. ways you use soft drinks. That could be a framing yeah. that may be a little better to force them into moments instead of just broadly the role of soft drinks in your life. But they'll all kind of get to the same place. And there, what we're listening for too are when they say, you know, oh, well, this one here is about, you know, this woman floating on a cloud. And, you know, that's the peace of mind I know uh, when I have my, uh, you know, my favorite uh, soft drink with me uh, on my afternoon break, you know, or when I take my, my midday break at work. Okay. Well, we know, let's start playing. What is that midday break about? Why do you, why is a soft drink a good fit for that? You start to get that someone else in a story or that same person might even say, you know, and that's different than this image here, which is about, you know, when I'm, you know, drinking with friends, you know, you know, afterwards, or when I'm at lunch socially with people and it's a connection time versus a me time or something. So it can be the way by asking that broad kind of question, it can be the way to start getting at these moments. And then we start doing those deeper dives around those moments to get those experiences. Um, so, okay. so met and metaphor is a great way because you can just start asking those questions. How is this experience similar or different to that experience or what else in life gives you the same feeling that having a beverage at your break time gives you, um, you know, that kind of thing too. So you can use, I think what it helps do, whatever process you use to get these jobs to be done, kind of laid out what techniques like ZMED or other metaphor elicitation techniques can do is help bring some color and some richness to exactly what's going on in those moments, what it's fulfilling for them emotionally, um, you know, all that kind of stuff too. So you've used this phrase a few times, mental moments. What's, what is a mental moment? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm well, it sounds like that's part of the, uh, the lexicon or part of the processors. You have a very precise definition of what that is, I think. Well, I have. So, well, I'll talk about the mental, I guess I'd probably say mental models there. And I was thinking about that, but that's a frame we have around a topic. Um, so our mental model around, um, you know, apples something like that. You know, I have a mental model around apples. Some of it's about eating apples. Some of it might be linked to apple trees or Johnny Appleseed. A kind of, who knows? We have these like mental models or frames about different topics in life. Um, and that's what we kind of try to go about understanding is what's the mental model that people have, that unconscious framework that people have about a given topic. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so that's kind of what I talk about too. And I will talk about moments also. You know, we think about those probably very similar to, to you as it relates to jobs to be done or whatever. You know, a lot of it's about what's in the moment, what's the motivation behind that, what's the reason they're drinking mm -hmm. it, why that yeah. versus something else, why that versus a different beverage, why that versus a food or with a food, how's it different? You know, all of those different things, who's the context with in that moment. Um, you know, these are all the kind of things you, you obviously you guys are thinking about too, as you think about jobs to be done. What, what would be an example of a, a mental model? Is that something that can be like just from, from apples or from anything that comes to mind? I think, a, okay. So an easier way to think about mental models. Um, and I probably muck it up by using mental model, but it's really just your, <laughs> your, your thoughts about an experience. Um, it is the way that you, you know, you bring to, I know I, we call it a mental model because we're able to kind of build 
it's too technical for here, but these mind maps that kind of build the kind of means end chains about a topic and how everything interconnects with the concepts and everything too. Um, that's kind of where we get into these mental models or mind maps about a topic, but in a very kind of broad sense, it's literally just your thoughts about a topic the year. Uh, that would include your motivations, emotions, behaviors, all of that sort of stuff makes up your mental model about how you think about, you know, cars or, you know, a specific brand of cars, that sort of thing. Is there a template for, for those? Like, like it must have emotion, this, maybe you must have these nine components or is it not really, or not so much? Broadly. I mean, there are some, I mean, there's some frameworks we use here. Um, you know, our, our deliverables will always have kind of that classic laddering of attribute or, you know, product attribute going to a functional outcome, going to a psychosocial outcome, going to an emotion, and then sometimes going up to some higher order identity. And, you know, you might start to see a bunch of these chains and in jobs to done, uh, jobs to be done. Those are all very relevant too, because you're looking for what is it about this kind of solo um, afternoon beverage moment around escape. What, what is it that's driving that to be an important job? You know, the, the, whatever the labels you put around that. Well, you can then use these ladders to say, okay, this is where it's coming from. So this, you know, uh, caffeinated, you know, revitalizes me, you know, leads up to this able to, you know, successfully, you know, uh, accomplish my afternoon tasks makes me feel good, peace of mind, whatever these things are. So we're kind of always looking at those. So we'll have often have that kind of uh, ladder there as we're thinking about things too. And then also the deep metaphors layered into there too. Um, is it an emotional transformation they're seeking with that break or is it freedom from uh, entrapment or connection to others? You know, that's where you can start to see some of these metaphors coming to life too. I find myself reflecting on my eating habits during the workday as you're describing <laughs> that. I think I, I think I snack it is much worse during the pandemic. I'm trying to reverse it out to, av to avoid work. Cause it almost like, it feels <laughs> like, I'm doing something. like I just want to, don't want to do some work task. I, so really what I need is a mental break. So there's probably things besides eating something, but I can zoom at you after on this and we can get to the root <laughs> of this. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I, I have so many questions coming to mind because uh, just this, oh, yeah. this little segment, uh, I think encompass a lot of, very interesting thing. And um, the first comment I would make is my mental model about mental models is basically boxes and arrows. But I don't know if that's really uh, <laughs> the, 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 the right mental model. But um, so, I mean, you talked about this, um, this laddering and these means end chains. And um, I think, I mean, a lot of practitioners in jobs to be done and um, Jan in Ventbridge, they talk about this a lot about doing this hierarchy. We talk about a hierarchy of jobs. Um, I think that the slight difference is uh, in means end chains, you actually at the, on the very bottom layer, you, 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 you actually go right down to the attributes of a, of a product. And mm -hmm. I tried by, I'm by no means an expert in this, but I did try kind of doing my own means end chains and different projects and stuff like this. And I found connecting these attributes to the higher uh, level. So when you go from the product side to the, what the person is experiences, experiencing on the different levels, it was extremely difficult. And I could practically never actually finish doing this because for various reasons, I think, I mean, I think there's, so one reason is 
there's this notion in systems thinking of, you know, the, the whole is other than the parts or so, something like this. And when you're talking about a product and the effect it has on, on consumers, on people, on users, then you're typically in this kind of situation where you have a, a, a whole a product or a service and, and it's very difficult then to attribute, you know, what, so the impact on, on the user of the different parts. So I can, you know, okay, what's the, uh, how does the wheel of a car, you know, affect the way I drive, you know? So, I mean, yeah, maybe you can do some kind of, but what I found is either it's too trivial. So you're like, um, you know, you have something really stupid. I don't find any example, but you have like a really simple model or it's so complicated that it's, practically useless because you you don't know where mm-hmm. you don't know anymore you know that you've got arrows everywhere and and uh, so so i just wondered i mean about i mean what's your experience with this and and linking these attributes product side to impacts in the users yeah so we've had we've spent a lot of years fine-tuning this but we've had those same issues too if you include everything it's this overwhelming set of lines and boxes as you're talking about it. I mean, it's, it's unusable by the client. It's, it's just overwhelming. We used to do that in the old, old days because we were just like, we'd uncover so much. And as researchers, you don't want to leave an insight aside. So you share and you end up realizing that that's doing more damage than good because, you know, and then sometimes you go too simple and yeah, you lose some of the, you know, you get to these constructs of makes me feel happy. I mean, that's so broad. Like, <laughs> You know, so we'll do in our interviews, things like that. When consumers naturally say, and it makes me happy when I have that. We do a lot of elicitation around that to happy. Like what, what else in life gives you that same feeling of happiness? We're paying attention. to when they said that earlier in the interview, we might say earlier, you mentioned this, this also felt you happy. How are those two happies similar or different to each other? So we're doing that with so many of these constructs. Um, and we're not just at the emotional level too. When someone says, you know, it's, um, you know, that just energizes me, something like that. Um, you know, we'll say, is that similar or different to when you talked about energized earlier and that other thing? And that's where you can start to split off and say, oh, this is interesting. There's a morning energized and an afternoon energized and they're different. And so we do a lot of that. Um, but I think a lot of what you're talking about too is it is, it's just, it's hard to figure out what's the right level to share and present and make useful where it's not too much, not too little. We have a nice, I mean, like we're a qualitative process with this, but we actually use a quantitative process uh, to build those mental models, those mind maps we're talking about too, um, where we're actually building based on threshold levels, how many people said things and you can see certain boxes or links drop off or add on as, you know, so we're doing some, using a, a software we have in house that we built um, so we're doing some of that where we can actually just see through the click of a button, where's that sweet spot on, you know, what's too much, what's too little and, you know, some of that. But yeah, it's, a, it, it's certainly a, a problem we all probably face. Folks, this concludes part one of our discussion with Lindsay Zaltman. Come hang out with us next time for part two. I learned so much from Lindsay. I totally plan to go further into this idea of deep metaphors. I've feel highly confident if I can understand it better I can combine it with these other bits of innovation methods and processes that I know and ultimately to become better and that's what all this is about but beyond that it's just a it's a reminder that no matter what our preferred innovation methods are where our experience is where our education is 
whether it's design thinking, jobs to be done, lean startup, or whatever, whether you begin with ideas or begin with needs, whatever your philosophy is, we can get stuck in our own world. And when we do, we close our minds to learning anything new because we convince ourselves we found the truth. And one of the easiest ways to improve is to find and meet folks that have figured out a different way to accomplish some of the same, some of the same things. Well, find Lindsay at OlsonZaltman.com. That's O-L-S-O-N-Z-A-L-T-M-A-N.com. On their website, it reads, In the world of insights, our brilliance is revealing yours. I love it. All right. That concludes this episode of the Product Quest Podcast. Drop us a line at productquestpodcast.com, and we will see you next time.